You're listening to a sermon podcast from Paramount Church in Columbus, Ohio. To learn more, visit ParamountColumbus.com. Well, as everyone's finding their way, let me invite you to turn with me in your copy of God's Word to our sermon text for this morning, which is Revelation chapter 22. Revelation chapter 22, and in fact, this is the final message. Now, Lord willing, this is not my final message, but this is most certainly the final message in our series in the book of Revelation, because next week we'll be getting, uh, we will begin a new series in the letter to the Philippians, which is also known as the epistle or letter of joy. That will be our focus for the next six or eight months as we work our way verse by verse through the book of Philippians as we typically do on into the summer. Because we want to be gleaning from the Word of God, just as we have from the book of Revelation, the many abundant reasons that we have to be happy in Christ, that we would glorify Him more and more and more by becoming more and more satisfied in Him. And this is a real accomplishment for us as a church to celebrate the passing of another book of the Bible that we have walked through together, praying that God would, would work his, his grace in our lives and would continue to give us wisdom and refresh us with the good news of Christ and to mature us and strengthen us in our hearts by the many strong, some difficult truths that we have that we have taken from the book of Revelation. This is the final message in this series, and it also is, as a chapter, the final message in the book of Revelation, of the book of Revelation. And I think it's also a particular providence to us that that we are able to celebrate the Lord's Supper as we bring this book to a close, because we have been considering so much about God's purposes in the world all which center on and flow out of the work of Jesus Christ, his life, death, and resurrection for us, us, which is symbolized in the taking of the Lord's Supper and even looking forward to the ultimate end that he is preparing for us to be with him forever in a new heavens and a new earth where there is no sin, there is no pain, there is no conflict, that sin is done away with as are his enemies And we are with him forever. We are looking forward to that. And we celebrate this together this morning as we consider the final message of John in the book of Revelation. This final message for us this morning really has just three parts to it. Three truths that that bring together the book of Revelation and everything that we've seen. But also they're helpful to us this morning because they bring together what is the basic central message Of Christianity. And it begins this way. First, the first part of this final message in Revelation 22 is we we focus most on verses 10 through 16, picking up where we left off from the public reading of Scripture this morning. But the first part of this message is that the world is invited to come while there is time. This is a striking message that we pick up in verse 10 because it's a message to a sinful world. It's a message that has been repeating from the very beginning that God has been revealing his grace, both in the Old Testament, even in the very beginning after the fall, as he's declared his plan for the seed of the woman, Eve, to come into the world as the redeemer of the world. And and down through the books, the pages of the Old Testament, he is revealed and revealed and revealed. and, And then we see him come in the Gospels. 
that Jesus Christ lives a perfect life in the place of sinners like us in a fallen world like this, dies on the cross and rises again, welcoming the world, all different kinds of people from different places and different colors and different languages to come to him. It's a striking message to a sinful world. Come while there is time. We hear this message come out starting in verse 10. Notice what he says. John says, he said to me, do not seal up the words of the prophecy of this book for the time is near. Now at the very end of the book, it might seem that we would expect something a little bit different. I would sort of expect it to be, it's time to seal up the book. We've said what we have to say. The time is through. It's, it's coming to an end. Close the book and let's move on. But yet, even here, there is patience. Do not seal up the words of the prophecy of this book for the time is near. That there is time to come. And here is that, that refrain over and over again in the gospel. Come while there is time. Here we are seeing the supremacy of the gospel over the law. It is an amazing reality declared in scripture on every page that the God of the universe who is ultimate in righteousness and power and goodness and even wrath holds out over and over and over again to the world a disposition of patience. He is ever saying, even as the world refuses to come to him, even as the world continues to blaspheme him and false worship is happening all over the world, in the world he created, that he keeps saying, the gospel is better than the law. Because the message of that law is the message of condemnation. It's declared to us on the pages of scripture in his commands and his righteous expectations, what he expects from the people he's created And that law brings to people like you and me, everyone in here, when you hear the law, you hear the voice of bad news. Because the law doesn't offer us any grace, it doesn't offer us any hope, it simply says, you have not done what you should have done. It says, do this and live, and because you haven't, you don't get to. But then comes the gospel. And it's that message of the gospel that continues to answer the law and continues to hold off with patience, saying, come, Come while there is time. While the law says you're dead and condemned, the gospel of grace says come freely because there is time. I think this is why the angel tells John to leave the book open in verse 10 because there's this ongoing welcoming. You even see in verse 11 the way that that life continues on as it has, as this announcement of good news has opportunity to be planted and grow fruit. In verse 11, let the one who does wrong still do wrong, and the one who is filthy still be filthy, and let the one who is righteous still practice righteousness, and the one who is holy still keep himself holy. The book is open, calling out this welcome. You've been on on road trips before and you've probably noticed like we have one of the things we like to mark as we go uh, on vacation somewhere and pass through different states is we always try to mark those signs. When you come into a new state, there's a nice big bright sign with the state emblem on it and it welcomes you, doesn't it, to to that state. You're entering into our state. There's this ongoing welcome. We love to mark those signs or take pictures of them and notice them. Even, Even Google Maps on your phone will usually pop up something there. And I think it's just another one of those wonderful reminders, those little, well, 
Easter eggs maybe, uh, in the world that God gives us as a reminder of his disposition toward us. Because he's doing what those signs always do. They always say, South Carolina welcomes you. Arizona welcomes you. Florida welcomes you. Christ in his kingdom at this time, now and until the end, is holding out a sign which is the cross of Jesus Christ saying, I welcome you, come to me. In verse 17, we read, the spirit and the bride say, come. And let the one who hears say, come. And let the one who is thirsty, come. Let the one who desires take the water of life without cost. From now until the end, the people of the world are called to come. And what is such an amazing privilege is that you and I, in Christ, have been brought in, not simply to be those who come, but to be the voice of those who want others to come. This is why we talk a lot in our church about evangelism, that we would be faithfully sharing the gospel. In the early days of starting a church plant, that is something that's really easily on our minds. We feel that. We want to reach a new community. But over time, for all of us, as our lives kind of fall into place and we get into routines, it is kind of common, isn't it, that that can drift away from us. There's so many other things to think about and do But we want to keep encouraging one another again and again to remember the great call that we have received, which was to come to Christ, and then by grace he brought us, is the same call that we should be issuing to the world. This is what has been happening from the very beginning, that there's two calls. There's this general call of the gospel as missionaries go around the world, taking the good news to people everywhere. The hope that that God would save some reverberates on every page of scripture. And therefore we go and we say along with this, come. But we also know that we're not the ones who say it alone. That in fact, it's the Lord himself who is saying come. And he's able to give a a welcome or an invitation and calling like we cannot. It's not the general call. It's this this effective call, this action-taking, life-changing call that God brings as he inhabits that good news that we share with the world. And he carries it not just to the ears of other people the way that we can, but according to his sovereign will, he carries it into the hearts of people just like us. And when that good news comes into a heart, it, it explodes with light and love and joy, and it awakens the sinful heart to finally see Christ as he is and to treasure him this effective call. That's why we have confidence when we share the gospel. That's why we delight to see a verse like this that seems to be saying over and over again, come, there is time, there is time. Because our hope is not in our ability to get people to come. Our hope is in God who has committed himself to bring people to come. Listen to Luke 15, what we read about the lost sheep. Now all the tax collectors and sinners were coming near Jesus to listen to him. And both the Pharisees and the scribes began to complain, saying, this man receives sinners and eats with them. What do you think he's doing when he receives sinners and eats with them? 
That turned the, the Pharisaical people just on their heads all around. All of the people who thought that they were self-righteous and they had everything figured out in life and they were the religious elite. They look at Jesus who comes as a, as a prophet, as a redeemer, as someone who claims to be the son of man, the son of God, the redeemer of the world. And they look at what he does and it doesn't make any sense. He doesn't do the things that they would do. And namely, what does he do? He receives sinners. That's the other side of the call. It's not just a call to come. If you want to come, you can come. But rather, it is this intentional effort in which he is receiving. That's a beautiful picture. Because it's one thing to go out on a street corner and just preach at sinners like they did when I was in college. And they just point out who's got shorts that are too short and and who has their hair a certain way and, and who looks like this and who has their fingernails painted like this and just declaring law. But what is he doing? What does Jesus do when he sits with sinners and eats with them? He welcomes them. He says, even you, even you can come to me. And receive them. Here is this ongoing welcome. The first part of this final message. Bringing this this incredible book together. Is come. There is time. But there won't always be time. Will there? In the end there will be a judgment. There will be a great judgment. In which the whole world is gathered before Jesus. Who will judge the world. And then the end will come. He will separate those on the left. From those on the right. And only some will go to be with him. But now, even now, there is time. Therefore, as we see this verse, we want to take this challenge again. Let it refresh your heart. Let it re-encourage you to be a voice of cheerful welcome for sinners to come. You and I are sinners. We are surrounded in this room by sinners. We are surrounded in this church building by sinners. We are surrounded in this town and in this state and in this country and in this hemisphere and on this globe by sinners. There's no lack for opportunity to be a cheerful voice welcoming sinners like us to come just as someone else welcomed us. Let's keep in mind as we allow this verse and this incredible message of grace to wash over us to remember how we came to Christ. It was because someone else came to you on behalf as an ambassador of the ultimate welcomer of sinners who sits and eats with sinners and receives them. Someone said, the king welcomes you to come. We want to continue to be that voice everywhere that we can. And we all need to just continue encouraging one another with that and holding out this incredible hope of the gospel to all that we can cheerfully and happily. We do that with urgency because there's a second part to this final message and it is that Jesus is coming and he is coming quickly. Notice verse 12, what we read, behold, I am coming quickly and my reward is with me to reward each one as his work deserves. I am the alpha and the omega, the first and the last, the beginning and the end. Even here, I think that we find a difficult truth to understand, and that is that Jesus is coming quickly. Because the reality that we've experienced in this life after 2,000 years of church history, we've kind of settled in, and it, it sort of doesn't feel quickly as we understand quickness. 
as perhaps he comes across off the, off the, um, the pages of Scripture. But he says, behold, I am coming quickly. Is he coming quickly? What's taking so long? Why does it seem like so much time has passed? Shouldn't he be here by now? That's the cry of many of our hearts as we try to understand and we read this and we try as we should to make it line up with, with, our, with our life. What needs to be changed in the way that we see things? Well, first, I want you to notice that this is a common refrain in Scripture. In fact, it's a common refrain in this chapter of the Bible. It's in three different times it's repeated, and I think that's important. Verse 7, verse 12, verse 20, as you just look across the pages of your Bible now that you have open, you see it over and over again, I am coming quickly, I am coming quickly, I am coming quickly. I think there are a couple of reasons why it can feel like he's not coming quickly. And there are some adjustments to our expectations and our understanding that we can gain from the word of God as we think about this. First, I suppose that in the grand scheme of things, his coming is quick. But sometimes we lose sight of that because we're only seeing the the little part that affects us. We haven't had a vision all the time for the broader redemptive plan. And that plan is big. God is doing so many different things in the course of his coming or Christ's coming again. And all the while, he is working, working, working. You know, I wonder if we could see that a little more clearly as we understand our Bibles better, even if God were able to give us some divine vision, a little clearer of what all has been happening, if we could as creatures to take it all in, I think even then it would settle a little bit of that impatience because we would have a greater appreciation for all that he is doing to bring together his wonderful redemptive plan into an incredible final climax of glory to him and happiness to his people. And then we would realize, oh, it feels like it's taking a while because there's much to be done. He's not just sitting there waiting, biding his time. It's not quite time yet. Maybe tomorrow, maybe tomorrow. But rather, he's always working. But also, I think there's another truth here buried in these words, I am coming quickly, that if we can divert our attention a little and focus in on these, it can help us to understand why does this refrain keep coming? Because it's not simply a statement of fact or time that we would agree together that that Jesus is coming quickly that we would be able to define on the timeline, well, how long would that be? Is that three more weeks? Is it three more years? Is it three more centuries longer than that? But rather, there is something emotional. There is something treasure-oriented. There is something worshipful, calling to us in the words, I am coming quickly. And it's the calling of eager anticipation. I don't think that these words are merely intended to just communicate to us a propositional fact, I'm coming quickly. But they are to work under the power of God's grace to awaken us in us a longing and an anticipation of his coming. That every day we are reminded he is coming quickly, his coming is soon, and that needs to match our hearts. Sometimes it doesn't. Sometimes we lose sight of that and that's not our greatest hope or our greatest concern is that we feel our need for Jesus. So we need that over and over again, don't we? Maybe take a moment and think now and um, maybe this afternoon, maybe in the days coming in this week 
about how your heart interacts with the coming of Jesus Christ? Is your heart in anticipation and eagerness about his coming? And if not, what can you feed on from the word of God? How can you gain encouragement from each other that that our hearts would be more longing for him, more expectant? Like those first disciples after he rose and ascended to heaven who who stood there standing watching. And then after that, they gave themselves to the mission of Jesus Christ on the earth, but they didn't stop watching. They were always anticipating. They were always waiting. Even as we look forward in this chapter, listen to where it comes up again, this this, this, um, explanation that he is coming. Verse 18, I testify to everyone who hears the words of the prophecy of this book. If anyone adds to them, God will add to him the plagues that are written in this book. Everything that has been declared about his coming is so important to him that he gives this clear warning. If anyone takes away from the words of the book of this prophecy, God will take away from him, from the tree of life, from the holy city, which are written in the book. Why so serious? Because he who testifies to these things says, yes, I am coming quickly. But you notice, what is the response to those words? I am coming quickly. Amen, come Lord Jesus. That's the way that believers are to respond when they hear those words or that truth. I am coming quickly. Yes, amen. May it be, please do come quickly, come quickly, come quickly. Wouldn't it be amazing if that could become a kind of reverberating mantra in our hearts? It wouldn't just come up when things get bad. That's what happens for me. Something goes wrong. Something gets bad. I feel some kind of pressure and suffering. I start to think of ways that I could escape this life or the trouble. And then I'm saying, come quickly, come quickly. Get me out of this. But what about in those moments when everything is good? What about in those moments where everything is mediocre and just fine? If that still would be the the reverberating mantra or motto of our hearts, come quickly, come quickly. We are ready to see you. We are ready for you to have your glory and have your people. But until then, we are assured of this in verse 21, the grace of the Lord Jesus be with all. May it be. It is anticipation. We have an opportunity as we bring this book to a close and we have so much on our minds if we think back and if you're a note taker, you have wonderful privilege and opportunity to flip back through the notes that you have taken about the book of Revelation and perhaps even by doing that, it will continue to compound the effect that we're going for, which is that we would grow in our anticipation of Christ because of the faithfulness of his cross. If you think about anticipation, your mind might gravitate to some of those symbols that we use. One goes like this. Have you ever thought about this when you cross your fingers, what that means? Now, it is true that when I was a kid and sometimes when I've been an adult, I have said something with my fingers crossed behind my back because it gives you the sense, or hopefully you're just joking, that you're not really telling the truth or you don't really have to keep that promise. Of course, sometimes people use this, but that's not the the main way. This is about after you interview for a job. This is about when something good may be coming your way. It's the picture of anticipation. You know, what's so interesting about that is that this is not a new symbol. This symbol has been around for a long time. In fact, it predates Christians, but it was adopted by Christians because history shows that even some Christians used this to show each other that they were Christians. 
because it is crossing your fingers. It carries with it that kind of image that I am anticipating. I am waiting. And isn't that interesting and helpful? That's a good reminder to me. Why are we anticipating? Because of a cross. Because of what Jesus Christ has done for us. What we're going to celebrate today is an anticipation. When we take it, our prayer is that God would minister as a means of grace to us. He would minister to us and build in us an anticipation about the cross. That the cross is our hope and the cross is coming. It's coming again. Two reasons that we should eagerly anticipate his coming, he tells us here, that he himself is coming quickly. We really need no other reason that it is the alpha and omega, which also is symbolized behind me on the wall. He is the ultimate figure and he is the one who is coming quickly. But as though we need any other reason, as we considered last week, we don't want to forget that he's not coming alone. He is actually coming bearing gifts, a kind of rewards, but they are gifts of his grace because everything that he would give us has been a work of his grace. It's been a work of his grace to make his people who they are. So when he comes and he finds them and he brings his rewards, his, his many gifts to them, they too are gifts of his grace. They are reminders. They have been made possible, not because of the things that people do, but because of the promises that he has made and kept. We're reminded even in this uh, brief couple of verses from 2 Corinthians chapter 1, that for as many as the promises of God are in him, they are yes. All of God's promises in Christ are yes. And so Paul goes on and says, therefore through him also is our amen to the glory of God through us. And he says in verse 21, now he who establishes us with you in Christ and anointed us is God. He is the one who has done all so that we can anticipate his coming. He has sealed us and given us his spirit in our hearts as a pledge. He has made a down down payment upon us or a, a deposit in our hearts of the gospel and his Holy Spirit because he is coming again for us. He knows who belong to him. Therefore, as we are looking forward and our anticipation keeps growing about the world to come, as we've thought many times in this series, it has an effect on our daily life because we begin praying a uniquely Christian prayer. We begin praying a uniquely anticipatory prayer. As Paul Tripp puts it, we begin praying the most dangerous of prayers. And that's the Lord's prayer itself because in that prayer he says that we are praying that it would be done on earth as it is in heaven. Have you thought about those words? Have you thought about what that means when you pray something like that? What do you mean? You don't just mean may the circumstances of earth be like they are in heaven. Let's sort out the trouble and the conflict and let's get rid of all of that nasty stuff. But rather... As Paul Tripp says, that's a dangerous prayer because you are praying that God would make you as you will be in heaven. That he would work now, not just then, not at the very last moment just to quickly kind of wash you up and polish everything and then get you ready for the end, but rather now that he would be working in us. That he'd be working to change us. 
all of the things about us, all of the fears and the worries and the addictions and the sins and the giving in to temptation and the conflict and the petty disagreements and all the rest, we are praying, God, would you change us? Why is that so important? Because that is a prayer of anticipation. That's the kind of praying anticipatory people do. They are looking forward so much that they cannot wait for heaven to come to earth. And Jesus, by his Holy Spirit and according to his word, has already begun it. He has already begun bringing heaven to earth by changing us. So we ought to make that our prayer with anticipation for the return of Christ, that God would be working in us now as we bring this book to a close, at least for now. We can craft our prayers this way. We're going to have a prayer gathering tonight as we do on the last Sunday of every month. And and I expect to see everyone there that we would be able to do this praying. We say it's important. We have anticipation in our hearts. So let's gather together and let's pray in this way tonight at seven o'clock. And then finally, we close this, this series with one final truth, one final part of this final message But also in God's providence, it seems to me an interesting foreshadowing or preparation or introduction to the series that is coming next, which we'll title Connoisseurs of Happiness. As we want to delve into the book of Philippians and pull out every reason we have to be happy in Christ so that it would change our lives and the lives of those around us, that it would glorify our God, and therefore it is particularly appropriate that we bring this time to a close with these words. Blessed are those. The last part of this final message is, in addition to, come while there is time, in addition to, Jesus is coming quickly, that happiness is found in Christ alone. Here is this key word that we have been noticing, blessed. All throughout the scriptures, this word continues to bring this this refrain into our hearts, refreshing us with what God is offering to us in Christ. He is offering to us happiness. The word blessed here is makarios. In fact, I met someone the other day, and when I met them, that is the person's first name, makarios. And I thought, that's such an interesting name. And I didn't even know what it meant until I came back and was reminded of this word. You know what that person's name is? That person's name is happiness. What a beautiful name to give to your child, to name your child happiness. Look at this. That's what God has done for his people because he says, blessed, happy are those who wash their robes so that they will have the right to the tree of life and may enter the city by its gates, the city that we have been talking about, that they will be happy, that they will be blessed. Of course, there is this reminder here in verse 15 that there are others and they are outside and these outsiders are not happy. They are not happy. And this serves as a contrast to help us remember yet again what Christ has done for us and the overwhelming superiority of his thoughts and his ways and his offer of of real meaning, of real joy in life. Because it says in verse 15 that outside, 
are those who are unblessed. They are unhappy. They are unrighteous. And he walks down, which is so common in Scripture, down a list to to really bring that truth home and to set off the contrast. He says, outside are the dogs. That's a common way to to, to reference intruders or dissenters, those who who are troublemakers. They're not interested in coming to Christ to serve him. They're interested in coming near to thwart him. He goes on and says, outside are the dogs and the sorcerers. Those who, who don't depend on God's power, they wish for a power of their own. The sexually immoral persons, those who are characterized by a foundational aspect of our nature as God's creatures being perverted, murderers who oppose and take away life in malice rather than support and give life by an announcement of good news and trusting in the life giver, idolaters, false worshipers, and lovers of lies. Everyone who loves and practices lying, just like their father, who is clearly in scripture the devil. All of us are born with our father as the devil because we're sinners, we're lovers of lies until the, the one who is true comes and changes our hearts. Here is this incredible contrast. And that's why in the end, there will be this greeting to those who are in the new heavens and the new earth. And it will be a greeting of happiness. It's a greeting of happiness because they are made happy because their God is happy. Another word in in the Old Testament in Hebrew, it's a common word for happiness is sort of the counterpart to makarios is baruch. Now this is a word that I I have learned to say more and more the longer that we have been here planting a church because baruch Hashem is the, is the Hebrew saying, blessed be the name. And of our Jewish neighbors and those who frequent the, the many synagogues right around here, down at the Kolel, where we've spent some time in the past trying to get to know our Jewish neighbors and friends to have opportunities to share the gospel, this is the continual greeting to one another. You pass on the street. If I pass a Jewish friend on the street, I, I prepare myself to say, Baruch Hashem. Blessed be the name. But if you think about that, what does that mean? Well, just like Makarios, it means happy. Happy is the name. The name that is so exalted and high, the name of Yahweh, which our Jewish friends will remove the vowels because it's such a holy name in their view that they wouldn't say it all. That name, that name is happy. And therefore, we are known by the same word because we belong to Jesus. Happy are those who wash their robes. They are pure. We have been in Christ made pure, washed in the cleansing blood of Christ. They have a right to the tree of life to eat and be satisfied in Christ. Isn't it interesting that here at the end of the book of Revelation, at the end of the Bible, we are back where we began We have a tree of life. We have a holy city. The things have been put right again. That they have the right to come and take of the tree now and to eat that tree ultimately who is Christ. We will symbolize today the eating of this tree, of this life that has been given to us. And then look forward to the entering of this city as it says says in those words. 
they may enter the city by the gates. Those gates remain open. They may belong to the church, God's people, in God's place, under God's rule. And therefore, we look forward to this coming to a close and picking up next week with the book of Philippians because we are going to carry right on into this theme and the right on into this reminder that happiness is found in Christ alone. And the great challenge that we will all receive from this letter is to become, what I've said a few times, connoisseurs of happiness. People who delight to chase after the happiness of Christ, to know him more, to love him more, to enjoy him more, And then come to this conclusion in verse 16, before we take the Lord's Supper, where he says, I, Jesus, have sent my angel to testify to you of these things for the churches. I am the root and the descendant of David, the bright morning star. He is the one that we worship. He is the one who is coming again. He is the one who has saved us, redeemed us, keeps us, loves us, is cherishing us and delighting over us, changing us, answering our prayers making all of his promises, yes, in Christ. And therefore, we prepare our hearts to take the Lord's Supper this morning. I'm going to pray for us, and then uh, those who are helping to distribute the elements will come forward. Uh, A few instructions here. Um, First, taking the Lord's Supper is something that any of us should do if we know Christ, whether you're a church member or not. You are welcome to take the Lord's Supper as a ministry of, of him to you, as we reflect upon the gospel, and that's what we want to do during this time. We want to reflect upon the good news of Jesus Christ, the things that we have heard this morning, as well as to examine our own hearts and to ask God, is there a way that I can yet change? Show me how I can draw close to you, know you more, please you more, to be thinking in those those terms. It also could be that there is someone here this morning who's not a Christian, You've come in and you're, you're curious about the gospel. You you've ha- have answers or, or questions and they're being answered. But if you're not a Christian, then this wouldn't be a time for you to participate, but instead to observe and to ask God to give you everything that you need so that you might come to him and belong to him. Because we want to take the Lord's Supper in a worthy manner. The other um, announcement about the Lord's Supper today is you'll find as the trays come around, we're trying something a little bit new. Variety is the spice of life, as they say. And so you'll find two cups on top of each other. In the bottom of the first cup is the small piece of bread. And the top cup has the juice in it. So when you take it out, you'll just take it out as one stack. Like that, two cups. And uh, we're just trying something new. So let me pray for us as we prepare our hearts to take the Lord's Supper and celebrate together the good news of Christ. And those who are distributing will come forward. We give you thanks uh, this morning because of your grace and your mercy. We give you thanks because you have given us your word. You've so carefully communicated to us the words of life in your word and in your son. That you have done everything that is necessary for us to belong to you. And you have brought us to you even as sinners. You've received us in Christ by grace We pray that as we take the Lord's Supper this morning that we will find our hearts celebrating, finding in in it the joy of what you've done for us and the hope that it brings in this world, in this life. And we certainly pray, God, that you would use the Lord's Supper as a means of grace to comfort our hearts, that you would refresh our hearts, 
open our eyes and clear our vision, clarify our hearing so that we can see and hear you spiritually more and more in the gospel. And so we pray this morning that you would be pleased as we examine our hearts and we are reminded of what you've done for us and that you would work and bear fruit in our hearts as a result of our faithfulness to observe this command joyfully that you've given to us to worship together in this way. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen.